decoded. Welcome to this episode of the Founder Tech Decoded podcast. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Pooja Balachanda, who is a recently exited founder from a C-stage D2C digital healthcare business. Prior to that, um, Pooja was involved in product design uh, in the government sector in the States. More recently, she's crossed over to the other side of the desk, metaphorically speaking, as so many founders in this series have, where she now works uh, on the investor side for a climate tech early stage VC called Carbon13, as well as being an angel investor herself in early stage climate tech. So Pooja, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So do you want to take us through that journey? I mean, start wherever you want. You can go start at the beginning and work forwards at, the, at where you are currently and work backwards or however you want to tell that story. But it'd be great to, there's so many interesting kind of nodes in it. It'd be great to hear you obviously tell it in the way that it makes sense to you. Sure. So I actually definitely did not intend to be an entrepreneur or start a startup. I started my MBA program at Oxford, and that's what actually brought me to UK. And I had kind of a hypothesis that maybe one of many things that I might enjoy was working at a startup. But among other things, to be honest, I had been spending my entire career in government, um, doing product and design. And while I really enjoyed it and felt that it was impactful, I felt like kind of my learning had plateaued. And I went to do my MBA with this idea that, okay, maybe I'll transition into private sector. I'll be doing different work. I'll kind of learn new things, maybe transition careers. Um, And literally within the first week of my MBA program, I ended up meeting my former co-founders. We started working um, right away. Um, And really like the idea and kind of the topic area for the startup did not come from me. Basically, one of my co-founders was a preschool teacher, and she came to the MBA program with this intention of starting a social enterprise in early childhood development. And because my background is in product design, I kind of was like, okay, I can help you go from, I want to start something in this space to, you know, this is the thing that would be the most impactful and kind of viable and commercial. And here's the form that that product would take. So I could I could basically help her sort of get to a real thing um, from that idea. Can you just and put so, the color on to that picture? So you're at Oxford doing your MBA. How does that conversation start? How does it sort of like you having having lunch one day and somebody says, you know, your, your, your co-founder of the piece says, hey, I'd really like to do this. And you go, actually, I've got that piece of the puzzle. Can you just give us a tiny bit of insight onto how that kind of conversation fermented into an actual plan? Yeah, I think, it, to be honest, the, the details are evading me at the moment, but I believe um, we had kind of this like welcome week um, type program for the MBA program where everyone was kind of meeting everyone. And I don't know if you've ever been sort of in an, in this sort of uh, an MBA context, but it's insane networking. <laughs> Basically, yeah. you're surrounded by kind of like hyper networkers and everyone is sort of trying to tell you their both kind of their background and what they were doing, but also sort of why they're here, what they're hoping to do. Um, just like an incredibly passionate group of people. And yeah. so in that context, literally kind of within our first conversation, probably um, I heard from my co- my former co-founder that, oh, she wanted to 
start a company in early childhood development. And I said that I was doing product design and that, in fact, um, in the past, I had been working in child welfare um, and health and human services agencies in the U.S. So I was kind of familiar with the space and a lot of the, the challenges that she was saying that she was seeing. And at the time, I was just kind of interested, you know, just actually intellectually interested and said that, you know, if she needed support, I was available. And she was just a very proactive person. And as she actually started kind of doing, you know, the research, she she just pulled me in right away. And I just got more and more and more involved <laughs> to the extent that I kind of became part of the company. And then eventually, once she actually decided to step down, became CEO of the company, um, and a solo founder. So that was, you know, its own journey, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how we ended up, how we came together was just, I guess the MBA is sort of designed to, to, to have make those conversations happen. And once that conversation was open, and like, and the possibility was there, and like you're so early into the MBA, are you are you immediately thinking actually this might be why I'm here, and this sounds like a really good way to possibly spend some time and move into a completely different trajectory? Did, was were you thinking that, or was it much more like this is interesting, this person's really interesting, I'll see where it goes? To be honest, it was much more the latter. I think I came into the MBA with a very I kind of came into it with a bit of a product mindset, to be honest, where I was kind of thinking, okay, well, maybe I would like to do consulting. Maybe I could even see myself doing finance. Maybe I wanted to be in a startup. Maybe I just wanted to go to the corporate route. Really, I had no experience with any of the above. And I was like, okay, how can I get sort of use this year during the MBA to kind of get some exposure to each of those things? And I pretty quickly ruled out through like classes or internships or whatever the above, you know, it was almost a process of elimination that kind of left me with this as the thing that was kind of the most, the, the most energizing, whereas like everything else I was doing, you know, I'd start doing it and I'd kind of be like, eh, this isn't really for me. Um, And this was the thing that, you know, you know, it was literally kind of keeping me up at night, the, you know, in a positive way, kind of with the level of sort of energy and, and, and thoughts, thought I was giving it all the time. And what were you, when you were sort of ruminating at 4am, what was it that was like, you were thinking, this is, you know, what was your mind worrying on that was sort of, sort of, again, opening up new possibilities? It was very much the product, uh, the product challenges. So because we were designing an early childhood development kind of app, at first it was really about, um, okay, there's just like so many problems in this space. You know, if we, if we tackle this thing, this is all these things that we could do. If we tackle this thing, these are all the things that we could do. So it's just like a ton of sort of like creative energy. And then later as we started doing research and kind of honed in on like we wanted to build a product for parents, it was so much about kind of thinking during the user research, like, oh, this person said that and this person said that and kind of like doing, you know, that kind of natural synthesis process that happens in your head. So really sort of connecting the dots of all these different data points that I was reading or hearing. Um, And then eventually, once we actually got into MVP and the product and, and like actually developing the product, really thinking about like the requirements and like, oh, this feature could be like this, this different, or is this feature more important than that feature? And like, kind of, you know, we did this usability test and this person did that. And why did they feel that way? Or like, did, was this bit of feedback that someone gave like really representative, you know? So it was a lot of, I mean, honestly, my background is in product. So that was the sort of stuff that kind of excitedly kept me up. I'd say like the things that nervously or like kind of maybe more negatively kept me up was like eventually there were some kind of like team issues that would really, really play on my mind for a long time. And then um, 
and then eventually there were some things about like the fundraising process and um yeah the, I, i'd say like those were the things that that were maybe like draining but uh but occupied a lot of my time whereas the things that were energizing and occupied a lot of my time were the things around the products and even things around the customers actually as we started talking especially like eventually we were not just direct to consumer but one of our channels was through early childhood development centers and we would do pilots with um daycares or earlier centers or whatever and you know i would be kind of thinking about those conversations and those pitches and who i'd reach out to next and that felt like a very kind of generative space as well can, can we dive in slightly um into one layer down that particularly with using your product mindset because i think the space that you're talking about and and, and this hasn't come up actually on the podcast this idea where where there were probably lots of problems you could solve in lots of different ways i mean you, you you've intimated that you know and and a big problem of a lot of certain uh, early stage founders who are maybe on their first startup who maybe have you know who haven't got that product experience is that they don't know the problem to even begin to solve they try and solve they try and solve everything and solve nothing um, and then there's also the other problem where you can go too narrow as well um considering i know we're going to get to you know there's, there's an exit here what how did you find the sweet spot of the problem that you were going to originally solve and then did that evolve uh, through the, the startup's journey Oh my gosh, it evolved so much. Um, so I'd say the first layer was primarily based on kind of secondary research. So because we knew we wanted to solve this early child, we wanted to do something in early childhood development. And from like just a literature review, it became, and, and also my co-founder's kind of motivation, it was clear that kind of our team's energy was around uh, inequality and sort of supporting parents and children of lower income backgrounds. So the stat is that children from lower income backgrounds start primary school. So by the time they're going to kindergarten, they're already 11 months behind developmentally compared to their higher wow. income peers. And that's, you know, like before they even touch a formal school system. Right. Um, and a lot of that is already baked in by the age of two. So before they even touch preschool. And so um so a huge amount of that challenge first of all just lives in that already kind of puts you in the the territory of like either you have to be working in earlier centers and by that i mean really like childcare so like improving the quality and like all of these systemic issues around like early childcare then there's the side of like okay there's policy and that sort of side of things so you could you know there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting policy levers that you can pull around like you know giving like better maternity leave policies better paternity leave policies that have been right. shown to like really help to close some of those gaps and then there's broader kind of anti or like social mobility policy that like translates to this as well and then there's just like direct parenting support and so what we found was like, based on both our feedback, our, our expertise, her as a teacher and me as a product designer, it felt like we needed to do something where we could, you know, like policy was kind of not going to be the route that we'd go down. Yeah. We tried kind of looking at the early childhood centers, but we found that there were so many kind of, again, policy and systemic yeah. Yeah. issues. Um, that it made it kind of unlikely that that would be the route we needed to take. And so we decided parents was kind of the route that we wanted to go down, both because also the literature showed that 
you know, it was like these three things that kind of were contributing to that early childhood development gap. And that of those parenting was the biggest parenting style was one. And then parenting, um, parent mental health basically was the, was the second. And so that kind of came together in parenting and that was actually the biggest explaining factor. So first of all, the literature kind of quite clearly put us in that direction. That was the first kind of narrowing. Then we were like, okay, what are all the different things that parents could be doing? Yeah. And at first we were kind of like, we were thinking about what digitizing the things that, that my co-founder did in her classroom. And one of the things that she found most um, exciting during her classroom career was that she would write these really detailed developmental notes about each child. Like, so that she'd watch them playing and she'd like note down all their milestones and whatever. And she'd plan activities for each child or for like groups of children in the same kind of developmental stage that would help them progress. And so she was like, okay, what if I could make that level of um, expertise and kind of tailored uh, activity accessible to parents? And so We started out just prototyping kind of parents would send us pictures of their kids doing whatever playing. Um, My co-founder would, you know, WhatsApp them notes about what she was seeing in terms of like all these different milestones. And then she would give them kind of a couple activities to do with their child that would like take it to the next level. And it was super interesting. I mean, parents found it and and we kind of, you know, tapped our MBA network and just like already started using some of the parents that were there to start testing that first prototype. And it was just on WhatsApp. And I think that was kind of part of the, the value I would say I added in that process was kind of like helping her you know, just actually asking her those questions to be like, hey, what were the things that you found in your yeah. classroom that worked best? And and then like later being like, oh, okay, like we don't actually have, you know, at first it was, oh, eventually this needs to be like a computer vision algorithm that will like look at these pictures and do this stuff for you. And I was like, well, well, we can test whether this is even worth going down by just doing a WhatsApp prototype like tomorrow. Um, and so, um, so we did that. Uh, we debriefed on it. What we found quite organically was that parents, because they had this channel to an early childhood expert, would organically just like come to us. They would be like, cool, cool. It was nice to do that activity. But, you know, at, at 10 p.m. we get a text like, I can't make my child sleep. How do I do this? Right, right, right. Um, because they already had the channel. So why wouldn't they use it? Right. Yeah. So it was clear that like the more urgent issues were these pain points around like sleep, around eating, around behavior. Um, So like the developmental stuff was kind of a nice to have and even super interesting and engaging, but the other, but the other stuff was what was like the need to have. So then we kind of pivoted and started thinking about, okay, how do we actually support them in these like categories of stuff? And so how do we provide that, that personalized coaching around these issues? So that was our next WhatsApp prototype was like helping parents discuss parenting issues. And we did it again, we were doing like these WhatsApp things what we were trying to and so over time what we found was like okay we we had a lot of kind of like you know after having like we partnered with a community organization in Oxford to like reach however many families that they were working with and sign them up for this free WhatsApp prototype they signed up um we started chatting with them we found like so oh my god we had so many learnings from that process but eventually we got to a point where we were almost using a script so like it got to the point that even though I'm not a child development expert, I was able to use yeah. my co-founders kind of like handbook to have these chats too. Can I just ask you just to, just to, cause this is absolutely fascinating. And I think what, so, lo- so loads of people talk about no code, low code, you know, MVPs, all that kind of, you know, cost of MVPs, mm-hmm. gone down. but you've just done like a, almost like a case book 
study of how to do that. My question, therefore, is, if you don't mind me asking, how long, I'm sure you won't mind me asking how long that took from where you first had the conversation to where you're at this point. But how much did you had you outlaid in terms of capital? And had, and had you taken on any outside capital? I'm, I'm suspecting not very much and no, but uh, yeah, we spent nothing. nothing, right? We, like, to we get spent to this nothing point. and took in nothing. We spent maybe a little bit of our yeah. own money, I sure. suppose. I mean, at some point we were literally, you know, like doing, I was face painting at a children's yeah. event, a community thing to like have conversations with parents, you know. But, but, but how long is that? So, so you spent nothing on how long to get to this point where you're actually like honing in, like you say, you got it to a script. You were like, well, how, how long is that? Probably of- that took itself like six months. Right, so six months and no, no capital, and you're and you're basically at MVP, a very early stage of MVP, and you've gone mm-hmm. from kind of entering the space from a product perspective to be able to kind of be like, you know, like uh, uh, taking a leadership position in the space where you can actually kind of help orientate other people into the space. And again, like that, that's just the two of you doing that off your own back outside of the MBA itself. You're, you're, you've you've got yourself to that point. From your own initiative because again this is talked about so much but to actually hear it i'm assuming that that that's what i've just said is all all the case right i will say yeah all of that is the case i mean we we were like kind of trying to pitch for money and stuff and trying sure. to share the thing but to be honest we really had no idea we were like how do you monetize it i have no idea maybe parents will pay for it maybe child development centers will pay for it but what we know is that you know like 40 parents chat with us every day right all day you know and so, so how did you leverage that how did you how did you leverage that into an investment conversation like what what was that next step oh it took so much longer you know? okay good so, so I mean, we would have these like, you know, we were in the Oxford ecosystem. So there were a lot of like pitch competitions and sure. stuff. So whatever was our latest kind of hypothesis, literally just a guess about basically everything except the product was, um, you know, we would present it. We were, we always kind of got into like finals of things, but very rarely, you know, actually got funding or whatever, because, you know, it was rightfully like really have uh, not very baked in any way besides the product um and we did eventually we started having and at the time i think the other thing we were doing was we were like pitching kind of partnerships our, our business model idea was that we wanted early childhood centers to pay for this and what we were finding increasingly is like another thing we were prototyping prototyping was trying to get I should say we tried to because we got it to the point of a script we started trying to automate it we had a Facebook messenger like chat fuel bot again free or like 15 pounds a month or something and then um and I was literally kind of coding it myself and we um we were trying to get child development centers to pay for it and wow it was crazy hard so we actually got two you know, we got child development centers that said that they would pay for it. We got letters of intent signed. But just like if you look at the scalability of that model, it was like un- there are so few kind of child development chains. Their margins are so low. If you're trying to get like each one individually, unless it's completely self-service, which is unlikely because, you know, regulations are so high in the space, budgets are so low and and there's just a high level of trust that's necessary before you introduce parents or like young something into like for young children. Um, And so it took kind of like three to four months of convincing a child development center to try this thing and pay for it. And it would be like, you know, 40 to 50 parents that start using it. So it was just not like great ROI. 
um, mm. and, and the price lot, price point had to be really low. Sure. So then, we, you know, so like there was a whole like kind of cycle of iteration on that to, to where we like eventually got it to, you know, child development centers with the channel partners, but that we were, you know, direct to consumer with parents. So, you know, it took a really long time to iterate the business model too, kind of in parallel with the product. So, I mean, you know, I, I would say it probably took us a year or even like slightly longer than a year to get to like what I would call product market fit and not even product market fit to the point that people are like busting down our doors, but that like, oh, okay, this actually all makes sense now. There's not like one part of this that is kind of like not working yeah. really. Yeah. And so, um, and then we kind of had six months of like, okay, wow, like running now that we actually really had a strategy that we could run towards and we're no longer just kind of like experimenting with each part. Um, and then we got bought <laughs> pretty quickly, but it was just kind of like, it took a really long time. So um, you got bought, you didn't raise capital, you got bought from that position. We did raise capital eventually, sorry. So during that year, the, I'd say like that first six months, we definitely yeah. didn't. Yeah, we ended up that year. Capital. Yeah, we ended up raising capital through primarily accelerators. So we got like, uh, we were part of Bethnal Green, Bethnal Green Ventures cohort. Yeah. We were part of yeah. Cash 22. We were part of, so basically we raised like around 120K. So right. like a, a very, very small pre-seed, pre-seed basically. SAS. A very small pre-seed round. Yeah. Um, and we had a product, you know, like all of these things, but like all of the, uh, but with that, the, you know, the I think the funding came because those were like very tolerant and they saw, and they saw kind of that we yeah, had a process for yeah. learning. Yeah. As opposed to like, they were convinced that our current hypotheses were true. Um, and eventually, you know, like we came w through that process of iteration to like genuinely what we felt was the right mix. Um, but, and then we found a lot of success, I would say like both commercially and in terms of the product engagement, but it was a long process. Yeah, I mean, you've just, but you have given a textbook of how to do this properly, you know, like, like it does take that amount of iteration to hone in on something where you, I did the, we did something, we had a, right at the beginning of the series, we had a, a, a guy called Carl, who was like just a genius, I would say, at, le at leveraging his position. So whatever cards he had as a founder, he always leveraged like the two stages ahead. So it was always mm -hmm. had momentum. And it was like really great to hear him sort of show you how you did that. And I think what you've just done is like a, a similar kind of like window into how do you start with no money with a co-founder you didn't know and in a sector you didn't really have, you didn't have expertise and you had brought different skills in and iterate, you know, with a no cost MVP, learn, 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 take a, a small piece of, a small piece of pre-seed, have a few people believe in you because you've proved enough, you know, get some traction, move towards product market fit and then exit. I mean, that's like, you don't hear that very often, but that's, but that's, I, the reason I wanted to highlight it um, for the podcast is because you hear that's the um, like the archetype, isn't it, of, the, of what of, of what people think a startup is, but it's so frigging hard to do it and to do it successfully. So, congrats! <laughs> but, um, can, can you? I mean, I mean that sincerely. You just don't hear hear that that kind of journey. So, so, so then then can you just can we complete it before we move on to what you're doing now? um you know can you can, can you talk about the exit or what what can you talk about in terms of the exit yeah so we we got bought by a company called um think of us in the us they're a gov tech firm um and they sell 
products primarily to state and local child welfare agencies. Yeah. And so they, you know, there was kind of an obvious use case, to be honest. So like I, um, uh, selling was, uh, was really not my plan and not the kind of ideal outcome, to be honest right. for me. Uh, so I think basically um, we were in a position where a key team member uh, wasn't going to be able to join even as we were kind of about to close our seed round or I guess slightly bigger pre-seed round is yeah. really what I would call it. Um, and so we were about to close basically a half a million round. Uh, a very key team member had to take a step back. It was it became kind of, even if we were able to convince people to to the, our investors to kind of stay on board, which, you know, by no means would have been guaranteed. But even if we were able to, it, I, I kind of did the math and thought like, okay, it would take me six months to find yeah. someone new, get them up to speed, by which point we'd already need, you know, uh, metrics for our next raise, which yeah. we wouldn't have because yeah. we didn't have this person. Yeah. And so, um, and so it kind of became like a, either we shut this down now or I have to find a home for it. I used to work in government, like I told you, and I yeah. used to work in welfare. So I happened to work with someone who then went yeah. on to start this GovTech company. I literally DM'd him on Instagram um, and was like, hey, you know, would you, we should catch up. You know, I've been working on this thing. I think it would actually, you know, be super complimentary with what you're doing at Think of Us. Um, he, you know, got on a call with me, I think probably like that day or slightly later. Um, and at the time it was, you know, like, and, and, at the time it was very exploratory chat. It did not feel like it was actually going to happen. Yeah. And then, you know, like a couple weeks later, he got back to me and was like, Hey, I got the funding, you know, let's do it. So it was an incredibly, you know, quick and I think not particularly representative, um, you know, turnaround on the, on the acquisition. Um, to be honest, it was not like overly financially lucrative for me. Or, or for the company or for our investors or anything along those lines. But um, I think in terms of our impact and scale, we reached, I told you kind of our passion, the reason we started this company was because yeah. we wanted to close that child development yeah. gap. Working through child welfare is like the number one way that we could accomplish that goal. And we would never have honestly come close to have, having that level of accessibility for our product if we weren't, you know, a gov, a government, a B2G kind of play. Um, and given our, we were kind of selling it direct to consumer, it was a reasonably high price point. It was like almost $50, so like 39 pounds or something per month um, at our highest tier. And so, you know, it was not affordable for most. And therefore, and so this really, really increased our accessibility. And of course, the fact that it's through government and it became part of the child welfare system meant that we had unprecedented scale as well. So it's in California, Massachusetts, and Georgia now. Um, you know, just like entire states using it is very different than kind of our trying to get, yeah. <laughs> you know, extra hundred people to use it or whatever. Can I, so, can, I just, can I just ask you on that as well, just before we move on, we move on to now, because I think, I think what you've again, you've described is not talked about enough. Um, and, and I think it's that, that I think you were able to take a cold hearted to look at the situation, you know, and, and not be not let emotion or sort of whim or sort of some hyperbolic kind of like, Oh, it could do this, could do this and actually take a proper look at the situation and go, 
do you know what? We might have reached an inflection point, and okay, it might not yield financially or do what we thought it was going to do, but actually the impact's going to be great. We get to put some money in the bank, and actually that's a win on some level. And I think, again, the myth of the startup is always that it continues beyond that. And I'm a big believer in that a lot of, lot of founders and a lot of startups do hit that inflection point. And at that point, they do sort of almost pass it on to someone else at that moment because they, they can acquire the scale and achieve the scale much better. But that's just not talked about enough. Do you, now you look back on it, do you, are, you, <laughs> are you at peace with the decision? But do you know what I mean? When you look back, do you think, actually, that was a really good decision. That was for, for all the reasons that like you've just been saying. But do you look back and go, that was, that, that, that was the ability to do that, I think, again, is quite rare. A lot of people just see at the end of the line and often kind of it will go to zero. And do you know what I mean? And they would kind of think, well, you know, at least I didn't give up on the dream, whatever that was. Yeah. What, what's your view on that? I'm at peace with it. And certainly I, I will say this was not like, oh, wow, I'm just such an amazing decision maker or something. <laughs> I had incredible advisors who, okay. um, you know, I like talked this to death with the chair of my board and with my mom and my sister sure. and like my and and, you know, the and and our investors. And, you know, like I spoke to so many people who were genuinely just like had seen this entire journey. Yeah. And heard what the situation were like Pooja this is a no-brainer you know yeah. this is the decision you're supposed yeah. to make yeah. and it was me where all the angst was coming from me for exactly the reasons you said that it was just kind of honestly it was like an egotistical like but I saw myself doing this I don't sure, want to sure. give up control like I you know I don't want to give up the story you know whatever like so I think so much of that was just kind of like my angst and then once other people with more objective kind of were with more of an objective lens came in. They were like, it was very obvious to them. And I guess for me, it was just like, I had the good sense to listen, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, no, it's completely. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think it's like much easier said than done <laughs> to no, have no. that. I, mean, I had a week of agonizing probably over it. But the point is, is there's not, there's not really language for that kind of decision because it's, it, it's not baked into the myth of the startup. Whereas I actually think if, a, if there was a language and a stage for that kind of inflection point, you would see a lot more success in inverted commas. I just did air quotes, you know, like it's like it's mm. like because there is a natural inflection point. I mean, you have to go through all so many to get to that point. And I do think startups reach out and it's not every founder or every market condition or every product that then goes on to kind of scale with that original team. It's just I don't think it happens very regularly. I mean, I think one, that's one of the reasons why you get the high failure rates and, the, you know, this sort of unicorn, because that path is actually quite rare for one founder to do that. I don't, th I don't think it's very common. I don't know if there's been proper research done on that, but, but my instinct is, is it's just not very common. And actually, it'd be a lot healthier if a lot of people, you know, took the advice that you took and uh, to the, you know and, and looked in that way anyway let's let's skip to now like are you, now you are an investor um mm -hmm. why did you pick climate tech and what's it like investing from that lens of a vc investor angel investor into that specific sector like both it's a, a two-part question what's it like to be on the other side and how are you applying the lessons from that journey and secondly what's it like to be kind of in that kind of mic in in that sector in that in climate tech as a sector so in terms of what's it like to be on the other side, um, it's really weird, honestly. Um, in terms of just kind of, it, it feels judgmental and, and you know, I, I think I, I look at things and it's, it's sort of easy to critique and I can easily see kind of why 
you know, I, I, having been on the other side, I've had that thought so many times, like, yeah, it's easy to critique if you don't, if you're, if you have no skin in the game and, you know, that's kind of the position I'm in now. So at first definitely it was like, it was, it, it felt somewhat uncomfortable to be in the position of like, oh, I'm basically giving 30 minutes to someone who's dedicated their lives to this thing. Um, so that kind of power distance is a little bit, um, you know, disconcerting at times. That being said, um, I think it's, a, you know, it's it's been really, really great in terms of like working with the founders that I do get to support, either in a mentorship capacity or as a funder or whatever. I think that aspect of like coaching and supporting and really helping use my experience to help guide people, whether that's like, you know, how do you raise from angels or like, you know, how do you do a product development process? <laughs> I think so much of that and, and kind of like, um, even sort of, I have so many times a day that I'm normalizing, you know, this thing is totally normal. You know, yeah. you, you don't need to expect to have product market fit at this stage already, you know, just like keep, keep iterating or keep checking away at it. So I think, you know, that aspect is, is something that's really, really rewarding. And then the other thing that I'm loving is just the amount of learning and kind of range that you get to, um, learn about and get your, hand like the, the range of problems you get to get stuck in I think is really exciting um whereas like you know as a founder of course you have a lot of problems but at least for me you know after five years I was kind of like a little over being the parenting lady yeah um and now in climate especially there's just like so many different solutions so many different areas I think the thing that I really liked about working in government before all of this was that I would continually kind of be getting put in different agencies or working on different policy things. And I got to learn about so much different stuff. And I think this really, really like kind of scratches that itch. Um, so I've been, so I think to summarize, you know, it's been a little odd being on the other side of the table and kind of like judging, but on the other hand, I think the level of support that I'm able to give with kind of my operator perspective, as well as my investor hat on and the um, kind of personal learning and growth that I've been able to have here is, is really exciting. Before we move to the switch decks, just to kind of want to challenge some of those, not challenge, but kind of overlay what you, you know, your experience, um, particularly now with, with, with some of the assumptions in that switch tech. Um, when you, because of the space that you're in, in climate tech, I guess there is that um, going full circle back to your journey, what we discussed earlier about, you know, picking the right problem and then honing in on that. You, I imagine you must meet a lot of, you know, young founders, early stage startups who have got, you know, all the best will in the world, but are just too broad, too wide on, um, aren't, you know, ha haven't done that iteration. And then, in, and then I guess then when you do meet the founders that are kind of doing that, that's where you can really add value and go, look, just keep going into that because you can see there's a path. Is, is that is that the case in, in terms of the, the space that you're in? I think, yes, I think a lot, there's a lot of solutions in search of problems right. I'd say, in, in climate tech more broadly, especially because so almost all of them are B2B yeah. and all of them are in kind are on all, and a lot of them are in these like really legacy industries. Yeah. So it's highly unlikely, you know, like switching costs are going to be high to adopt every, anything new, even if it's not financial and it's just kind of like a cultural shift, whatever. Um, so I think there's just like so much inertia that you need to have amazing product market fit. Like you need to have amazing value proposition to your customers, whether that's revenue, a new, you know, stream of revenue or like, um, 
you know, savings or compliance, like one of those three things kind of needs to be true and needs to be extremely true in order for that, uh, in order for a climate tech, most climate tech companies to succeed. And I think just because you're mitigating carbon or you found a better way of doing something, you know, there's like a million reasons why that may not actually achieve yeah. product fit. Or you might just need to iterate on that a lot to make either both the business model and the product um, something that's actually scalable. And I think that's the part that like, yes, definitely it, it takes a lot of filtration to get to the companies that are either like have shown the ability to like learn and iterate enough to do that process and or have already done that and have therefore found something. Yeah, I, I think I think we could get into there's a whole conversation in, in that itself, you know, look, looking at that sector. But um, let's let's spend the last 10 minutes on on, on the switch. Let me just put a few things to you. Um, let's start with this idea that quality deal flow, I mean, your, your story is literally, again, it illustrates this, is starting pre-product, more and more starting pre-product. So, like, uh, if that's the case in, in climate tech, you know, what is the sort of, you know, the WhatsApp group version? Have you got a good example of some, someone doing that in climate tech where you would assume, you know, um, you, people would go to, like, solar panels, wind farm, wave energy, like all, all the algae, I work with someone who's using algae, um, mm. you know, these are all kind of big, big end solutions. Give me the WhatsApp version in climate tech, your favorite one, where it's like actually you can see someone's on the path using kind of no code, no code, this pre-product really early. I think it's really hard to do with, with not software, right? It's like extra difficult. I mean, the low, I think there's kind of a ladder, right? So the first is just really deep customer development. I think there's some ways that people are able to kind of like uh, so either either really deep user research that convinces, I think there's the side of like, you've done really deep user research. And so you're, I'm convinced that you really understand where your customers' pain points are and how, what they would have to change for your solution to work, I guess, and whether that's actually something that's doable by them uh, and, and yeah. on what time scale and by whom and whatever, whatever, whatever. So there's that. I think another is like, um, a way of hacking this is like, do you have an angel investor that is literally physically invest is, is personally invested in your product and is also a gatekeeper? Yeah, I think that would be like, that's a way that's kind of an obvious way. I think a company that's done this quite well, I, um, one of the Carbon 13 portfolio companies, Open Hydro, they just really recently released a research report yeah. that had a lot of like those potential industry partners yeah. who were co-sponsors on that research. So I think there's like really interesting creative ways that people have found to like find that for really it's like product market fit, but I guess really it's like um, the indicators that that is possible. <laughs> um because most of the time you don't have that hardware like ready to go or you need like significant investment to make that happen. So um, so in the 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 best that they can do is these sort of like proxy yeah. indicators. And, and I'd say might. like one is angels, one is really deep customer discovery. There's also these like creative ones, like a research report or like building a consortium and like being kind of a convener and leader. So there's some interesting ways that um, that I think I've seen companies do it. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, do you, does the term... Um, found a market fit come up and is it is it valued and if so how do you value it so so I mean, 
Propelli has very has been the founding market fit accelerator. I think one of the only ones for a decade. So it's our this is our wheelhouse. But you know, it's amazing how that term doesn't come up, even though so much is said. Um, and I don't know if it's existing climate tech. Um, you know, there's so much as the founder. Certainly, you know, in your story, so much as you and your co-founder. Um, do you do you think it's properly valued? If so, how is it? value within carbon 30 do you have a framework for it you know to yeah. assess to assess the person so i think in carbon 13 it's incredibly valued um there we do have a framework for kind of especially because we started as a venture builder and only now you know i've come in to start, to lead the venture launch pad which is for like companies that already exist but in the past it was really just bringing in promising founders yeah and helping them come together so i think like you know the founder market fit is absolutely at the heart of what we're doing. Um, and I think, so there is a framework around it. Carbon 13 has that kind of this ideal team makeup idea. So right. one is um, a commercial founder. So likely someone who is um, a, a serial entrepreneur and, or has very deep experience in the industry that you would want to be like selling into basically whatever that customer industry is. Yeah. Um, then you have like a science science co-founder and that's usually someone in like bio or um you know ba basically like some sort of physical science <laughs> something like that yep. physical or life science and then there's like a computer scientist or data scientist like someone who's kind of more the coder um so there's like kind of two sciencey people or like a science person a tech person and a commercial person and i'd say like that's sort of the broadly the framework that we're comparing people against it's, that's not necessarily that we have that makeup in every single team, but like generally we're looking for those kind of competencies as apply to kind of your solution and your customer and business model. That makes complete sense. It's refreshing to hear because often the answer is, well, it's just gut feel, which is fine. You know, there's this concept of subsurface cues that founders demonstrate, which you've kind of talked about as well. But you know, it, that we believe actually, you know, obviously if the founder is what you're evaluating, you have to have some kind of framework to measure the founder market fear. So I've got, I've got a couple couple more questions. Um, kind of you touched on them already, but the first one is like, now that you've been on both sides of the, of, of the table or um, is, is, do you, do you, this is a leading question, but I'm going to answer it like that. <laughs> do you agree that, that, um, the open engagement between the founder and investor and kind of leveling out the asymmetry is now the, the indicator of a, you know, of, of a modern day VC or an investor, i.e. like, you know, just leveling that out, keeping it open, saying no quickly and clearly. Do you think, and, and in Carbon 13, do you sort of, again, embody that where that, that, that you agree that, that that kind of open engagement is now, you know, the way forward and the way people want to do business in, in this in this space? I mean, absolutely. I think that's table stakes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the most I, I mean, if you look at I, to be honest, I think there's a lot of room for growth um, at Carbon 13 and at like probably most funds to do that. Um, in but I think, you know, if you look at, you know, what are the most successful funds doing? A lot of them are producing content um, in order to really like demystify that whole process. So I think that's really, really strong. I think also like there's so much more about um, there's so, you know, it, as part of our kind of fundraising preparedness process, we match companies with investor mentors, for example. Right. And so that, and that means that like, you know, you're getting kind of that insider perspective throughout 
hopefully, <laughs> um, it, throughout that process. So you're not necessarily learning quite so much by trial and error. You know, like I remember I had an experience because this was my first time and I had never even been in this world. You know, I got to like a third meeting with someone and they were like, cool, like share your data room. And I literally had to Google what a data room was. And I'm sure right. many people have had that experience. Yeah. And so, I mean, I hope that we're at least kind of like demystifying that level of stuff. Um, and, and, and so, so anyway, yeah, I, I do think it's like table stakes in terms of, I think there's tons of work to be done. I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to do it in small ways. For example, um, if companies progress per, past a certain stage with carbon 13, I give like quite, and if they ask, even if it's earlier than that, I give them quite specific feedback about why we passed. Yeah. Um, like here were my three, uh, observations and here's what led me to think that. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think a lot are, and, and I think that's, you know, to be expected, you, you have likely taken notes. The least we can do is, you know, like copy paste those notes and clean it up a tiny bit for someone to look at. No, no, totally. And again, it's refreshing to hear and, you know, the space like people would, you know, rather have a fast no that is clear than a slow mm-hmm. yes that is ambiguous and creates uncertainty. And, you know, we've all experienced that where, where it really massively impacts the founder unfairly. I will say just one more thing, sure, sure. Dan, that is that I think carbon 13 is very clear and that our investment thesis is around that 10 million tons of carbon yeah. um, per year at scale. So I think it is somewhat easier to like make those cuts because you can literally do yeah, the math. And I think that's like a that the more kind of explicit you can be on that sort of thing, the better as well. Yeah, understanding your point of view, understanding your parameters way up front and communicating those to founders so that, you know, everybody saves time. You know, you don't you don't need to have pitch text swimming in funnels that shouldn't be there. There's no there's no point mm-hmm. there. Um so last so last point, I mean fascinating conversation. Um the, the so obviously this is founder tech decoded. The the, the notion of founder tech is that um, you know that gradually the, the early stage venture ecosystem is being rewired by new entries into the space that are doing really cool things that kind of level out the asymmetries, the inefficiencies, do all the things we're talking about. Whether that's things like a seed fast or a vested or a landscape or hopefully what we're doing with black box, like that. that and then once you join, the, the exciting thing happen. I think over the next year is when you join all of those. Up, you know, the API start to talk to each other, and basically all of that sort of boilerplate, low level stuff that makes this space inefficient becomes just automated and really efficient, and data drives it elevating good faith actors elevating kind of you know um like actual the things that should matter which is the conversation between the founder and the investor and that iterating opportunity all of that that do you do you see that and if so um do you kind of think that that's an exciting where, where we could land and then my question which i don't ask everybody i'm going to put you on the spot do you have a favorite piece of founder tech before we then throw the floor over to anything you'd like there's a shout out to, to close to close this episode I guess if I had, so my favorite piece of founder tech was, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm getting the, the the meaning of founder tech right when I say this, but the thing that helped me most with leveling information asymmetries when I was fundraising was just not going to investors. And so I went to people that just really, really understood my market as opposed to were 
Uh, and to be fair, this was because I was raising a relatively small round. We were sure. doing it with angels. And so I used contact out, <laughs> which was a Chrome uh, extension. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned salespeople. Um, and I could find basically anyone's email that was on, or not anyone, but a lot of people's emails that were on LinkedIn. Um, and I found people that um, seemed to have some sort of strategic value or would yep. really understand my market or really understand my product or really understand my problem that I was solving and therefore reached out to them to see if they would be willing to personally um, invest. And there, like, you know, in some ways it was demystifying because it was like very obvious from the fact that I was even reaching out to them what the strategic, what was in it for them. Um, and I wouldn't reach out unless I was like, hey, I'm solving a problem that you currently have. You know, you're a parent of four kids and I know you're having behavioral issues because yeah. you tweeted about it four times or something. That is a bit sinister. It sounds like you're like you're eavesdropping on the middle of their night, but we'll, well, that's another conversation. <laughs> Like, that's a bit weird, but anyway, go on. Right, but then, but and then the, but then the other side is like, or you know, like you run a childcare center. Sure. I know that your like parents are coming to you with these types of issues. You know, like you, so you're familiar with both the market that we're working with as well as the pain points that we're solving. Yeah, and so you know, like just finding those people that are just so so aligned. Yeah, and to be honest, I didn't find a way of doing that very efficiently. It was very much like LinkedIn and you know Twitter and like the usual ways of trying to like find that needle in a haystack of people, almost the same way that I was finding my users, honestly, um, with the direct to consumer organic methods. Yeah. So really applying that to the investor search was what worked for me and probably contact out plus mail merge were like very low tech, but like the most transformational bits of founder tech I use to like kind of level the playing field. It's a brilliant example. Again, you know, you've, similar to kind of your MVP, like you use WhatsApp. The, 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 it's exactly what it is. I mean, what you, the opposite of what you've described is pinging out loads of pitch texts randomly to people who have no business, who are never going to read it, or even if they did, aren't going to understand it and aren't going to add any value and aren't. And, you know, and I guess the value of what you did reached its kind of... Um, Zenith, maybe slightly, slightly a wordy word, but you know when you went, when you reached your decision to sell, when you had the right people who understood the space around you as well as you know family and friends around you, maybe that you know it, it, who you surround yourself with and align with is such a critical part. But so mm. many people don't think about it, and founder tech is absolutely about creating that alignment. You know, a hundred percent, and and you know having three people, four people that can can be around you that that genuinely add value, genuinely understand the space and can pr provide some capital because they can see where you're going. That is what Founder Tech is trying to enable. Um, and then that, as the start of that journey. Anyway, we, we, we've, we've kind of reached the end. Again, we, I think we could keep going, but um, mm -hmm. the floor is, thank you for sharing all of that. It's really, really fascinating. Um, the floor is yours for anything, any shout out for your own angel investing, for Carbon 13, anything you want, um, you know, take the floor and uh, before we close. I mean, yeah, if you're if you're working on a really exciting climate tech startup, please do let me know um, whether that's, you know, something that you want to connect with Carbon 13 or you want to connect with me personally. I'm always really, really excited um, to connect with founders in the space. Um, we are going to be running the next cohort of our venture launchpad program at Carbon 13 for existing climate tech startups um, starting in May. So you know, now is the right time to reach out and I'm happy to, I'm happy to connect. Awesome. And we'll put your details in the show notes for people who want to do so. Um, okay, great. Well, again, Pooja, thanks 
for sharing that for that, that story. I, I hope that was interesting for you because it really, it really was. I no, think it was super exciting. Awesome. There's a thrill through line to everything you've done. Like, I'm sure you could see that, but from like where you started in government to kind of where you ended up, and then now, and now where you are, where, you know, climate takes so much about government and policy. Like, there's definitely, even though it's exactly. a, ra- a random interjection, what doing your MBA, it does seem like there is actually a pattern there, which I always find fascinating talking to people. So, yeah, yeah right hindsight. <laughs> it, 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 I don't think it's just hindsight. There's something else going on there, but where, but but so, so thank you for, for for you know really sharing. That and being um, allowing us to hear that, um, it's been uh, it's been great. Awesome! Thanks so much for the opportunity, Dan. This was great.